Welcome to North Beats from North Beach. I'm your host, Corey Luna, chatting with the people behind electronic music. Today, I chat with Caleb Dwart. I met this guy at residence at the show. He and I were sitting next to each other having a glass of wine. We start having a chat, and right away, we just click. Everything we're talking about, we know what we're talking about, and we're having a great time. We talk about and we relate to everything that we talked about in the podcast. It was fantastic. We we talk, we hit a lot many subjects. And we connected even more today when he he and I chatted for over 2 hours today. It was absolutely phenomenal. A great guy to talk to. We've got we've got 500 other topics to talk about next time we meet. We're going to do a beer tasting sometime. He's on the list. It's I'm already really excited about this podcast. It, our conversation went phenomenally well. And it's so wonderful to meet someone like him who's been in the scene for decades. And for us to meet like this was just uh, serendipitous. And the fact that he listened to my my album on the drive over to my place to do this podcast was very fantastic and right away he asked me on the one track that you did vocals on were you using an sm58 spot on couldn't he he was absolutely right i am using an sm58 and that shows his expertise and experience in the field really amazing couple of shout-outs. Check out Resident Frequencies, hosted by Density and Time, who is a guest on Peaked, which I do with Rich Hogben over here in San Francisco, the third Wednesday of every month. However, Resident Frequencies, the first Sunday of every month over in Oakland. Check it out. Fantastic live show. And also, please check out Resident, another fantastic live show. You have to sign up for that one particularly because there's only six slots for that show. There's all, and there's also uh, video slots to 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 uh, get in on as well, which are fantastic. We had Steve Pye last night, and my buddy Lenny Hammaker played as well. Fantastic. Carson also played great. Dylan nine hundred nine. Fantastic set. There's a fellow named by the name of Will who played as well at Resident last night. Again, fantastic set. Very, uh, very techno set. Really fun. Really fun stuff. Caleb's website, asylumart.com. That's his record label. Based out of here in the Bay Area. Please check it out. Check out his band camp of the same name, Asylum Arts. Great Great content on there. This guy's been performing and putting out content left and right. Excellent stuff. A lot of variety. You'll please enjoy this conversation with Caleb Dwart. Caleb, uh, thanks so much for coming over and talking to me about your music. 
Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so it's pretty impromptu, kind of surprising as I just met you last night. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think we kind of hit it off really quick in our in, within the conversation that we had last night at uh, at uh, resident. So yeah, it it you understood exactly what I was talking about. I understood, you know what you were talking about and there was just that click and I'm like let's do it yeah and uh, you sent me a link to your album and I gave it a listen on the way over I was really impressed by the sonic clarity of it and how it went together and I was like there's two tracks on there I want to sing on really <laughs> so I'm like da, 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 da. Why, why isn't he singing on this <laughs> and I was confusing you with uh, a couple other people I talked to and one of the other people that said they had been in choir and I said uh, was that Carson yeah he okay. performed he did the vocal yeah during the performance so I realized sense. it was him yeah. and because uh, I said oh yeah I did choral singing from fourth grade into university and he goes oh I did chorus too wow. and I thought wow he would sound really great right here I can hear you know the lyric piece <laughs> so uh, I was surprised when no vocals came in and the the album started off very reminded me of David Sylvian who did a number of instrumental albums in the mid 80s he had been a lead singer for a band called Japan late mm -hmm. 70s early 80s and uh, and then it took a turn and it went more like early Depeche Mode, 80s modular stuff. Yeah. And I was surprised by that too because when I've gone to resident, resident frequencies and, and Frank stuff, I hear much more the late 70s, like Vangelis or Giorgio Moroder and uh, Walter Wendy Carlos and all that, those influences mm -hmm. coming out. And all of a sudden I was hearing on this recording coming in modular but like early 80s modular and that that surprised me is that an influence on you it is yeah i'm very much influenced from you know the electronic music coming out of the 70s and 80s very much the 80s I, um, I think that's probably been a huge influence on me very much so and especially with the industrial music i really adore you know late 70s early 80s industrial music robin gristle nitzer ebb I could go on. Uh, there's, it's just. <laughs> I could know, hear. I could hear that. I can. And, and that's also you. surprised me. It's something that's always been a staple in my mind, of just the, the the sonic grit is something that I really enjoy out of it. And there's a lot of them. And there's a lot of emotion in it. And it's something that uh, probably resonates with me just because I'm not the calmest person, but. I know that you know there's I've always had issues with a little bit of animosity not so much anger because I'm not a violent person never was but just frustration probably and that's something that's always been with me although into my getting getting close to getting close to 40 that's really calmed down a lot so that's not so much a thing anymore but definitely still comes out in my music got it by the way, I would not guess that you were getting close to 40. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking, oh, there's a big gap between me and him. And how does he know these artists? And maybe he would be more, you know, Lady Tron, The Knife, or, you know, more <laughs> of that, that era of the 2000s. Um, so that makes sense. Yeah. And it definitely shows in you, that you understand that music and you're, you have the capacity to uh, 
create that kind of sound, but it didn't sound like you were being them. Like, oh, right. here's a Depeche Mode song. Right. Uh, like you're imitating. It definitely sounded like you, whether it was the wor- more world music stuff or the industrial stuff. And, and when it went from world into what I'd call a kind of electronic pop sound, I thought, okay, I, I hear this transition. And then when it went edgier into the industrial, I thought, why haven't I crossed paths with this guy? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, so, man. And it, and it all works. Thank you. Um, again, one critique I was giving earlier earlier is I'd redo the track that had the vocal, the spoken word yeah. on it with a different microphone. Yeah, something I need to invest in eventually. Yeah. The SM58 was something that I acquired a long time ago for like close to nothing so it was it's always been convenient and sounds better than my gooseneck from my ms2000 <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's a workhorse 58 is definitely a workhorse um the cool thing about microphones is there's so many inexpensive mics um, and mic modeling combinations where they'll do like a plug-in in mm-hmm. combination with the mic uh, maybe for 150 bucks these days you don't have to you don't need a u87 five thousand dollar microphone to to get a decent sound i have uh i've used on a couple projects i used a um what is the name it's like mmx something it was 99 bucks and the tone was really great for what i was wanting to do it uh i found that if you pushed it at all it would it would not, not clip but it definitely would distort and you would get a uh, almost like an over compressed at the top. But if, really? it, if that's the effect that you wanted, it was great. But I found with when we were cleaning up the vocals in uh, in post mix, you could hear that the vocals were being held back. Oh. Um, I do have a KSM 32, which I think was only like three, four hundred dollars. And I only used it for some projects because it was too clean. Mm-hmm. But I could hear that. Uh, for any acoustic guitar stuff, I could hear it for this too because there's a lot of space in what you're doing. Uh, yeah, something you might want to consider. Yeah, I definitely need to invest in a new uh, mic eventually. It's definitely on the, on the list of, of, of equipment that I need. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it never ends. <laughs> yeah, I actually got um, in my modules set, I, I'm not sure if you had a chance to take a look at it yet, but I got a module from this guy in, in England. Uh, I think it's one, it's like X1, one, one L, I forget is one three, I forget what it is, but he he put out um, a, mod, uh, a module that is just a, an input for a CB microphone hmm. with the, with a gain. That's all it does. And then you can feed that, that audio into any other module you want. So I, that, I just got that a couple months ago, so it's not on my album yet but I've been playing around with it and I've had a lot of fun with it so far. Okay, so you can feed the gain out. Do you, do you get it like a distorted vocal Yeah, it, or? it's not super distorted. It's definitely like a fuzz. Okay. But um, it definitely works better if you turn the gain up on it. Yeah, and you can actually get away with it sounding relatively clean by pushing the gain up still. But it's not, you know, it's a CB microphone. It's not, not amazing, but uh, it works, it's fun. Sometimes it's about character. Uh, I, I was recommended the SM32 for a, an alternate project. A friend challenged me. I've been doing 
um, experimental music, goth industrial, and uh, sort of harder rock, dark rock stuff. And someone challenged me to do an album my parents would listen to. <laughs> and they're big country country rock fans. So I, I took up the mantle and did the project, and that's what I used the KSM for. Because okay. it was very clean, very clear. But I found when I tried to use that microphone on other projects, you could just hear that it wasn't going to sit in with the mix. Yeah. So playing with different microphones uh, can have a big effect, more than we think. So highly encourage you to explore that. Now, we were talking earlier. Yeah. I'm looking at this little Korg module. You said the beats on the album were done with this guy? Um, some, some tracks, not, not, not every track. Um, some tracks, there's, there's that... Uh, the the Korg Volca beats, um, I can't forget what I can't remember which track off the top of my head right now, but there's one or two tracks on there with that, and then then there's also uh, the TR six hundred six drum machine that I also used. Got it. So I'd have to I'd honestly have to listen back because I can't remember the t- off the top of my head which one was which. I'm not familiar with this Korg. It's like a little small box. It looks retro. Looks like it's from the early '80s, but it it's also looks t- like absolutely a- contemporary. It's a current piece. Absolutely contemporary. Yeah, uh, Cork put out the Volcas uh, in the, over the past maybe four or five years, and they've been very popular because they're inexpensive. They're less than you know over a hundred bucks, but maybe less than one hundred and fifty dollars for for one unit. Wow! And they're very portable. I think you can power them off of six uh, AA batteries, but overall, it's and it, it's really versatile, really fun. You can you know, program your your drum solos in there, your and your 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 kits in there, and play around with it and just and alter the uh, the speed and delays on it. It's actually really fun. Uh, I had a friend of mine actually over the other day. Him and his kid. He said he said uh, he had his kid with him for the day, and he asked if he'd come bring his son over to play around and you know place jam out with with us. And I said, yeah, come on over. So this. This, just this past Friday, they came over, and my buddy fell in love with that drum machine. I tried to get him to play the 606, and he's like, I'm not feeling it, man. So I gave him that, <laughs> and he's like, ooh, all right. <laughs> so he started having a good time on that. Huh. Are these like little uh, It's Yeah, it's basically receptor, a touchpad. Touch- so like kind of like, um, what am I thinking about? Like a bookla, you know, kind of yeah. like that, but you know, it's a little, little different. But, yeah, you can hit those and you know, hit off your kicks, snares, and drums, and, or you can, then you can uh, program everything in, and it'll play in sequence. So it has a touch sensitivity as well, though. It, it does. Well, um... Because I, I actually, remember the Bookla I played back in... I don't think it does have ten- touch sensitivity. I don't think it does. Okay. The Bookla I played back in 87, which took up, like, half a room, it had no velocity sensitivity. It was just on-off contact, little yeah. metal. Pieces. I don't think it so has it, velocity. It looks like that. Yeah, we'll plug it in later. It's very cool. Yeah, and something you can throw in your backpack or, um, yeah. You know, a side bag. It's really small, but looks well designed. I think uh, that's definitely something that a lot of companies nowadays that that Korg had noticed was the technology is available to to compact a lot of your synthesizers now and now you can go play a show by putting all of your equipment into a backpack 
and I've been doing that in San Francisco. Like, you know, when I play resident or resident frequencies, I'm doing that. I'm th the best I can do, everything I can fit into a backpack, I'm gonna do that because I don't, I don't have a car right now. And I remember back in the aughts when I used to play shows and, you know, throw my bass amp into the trunk of my car and then the bass and everything else. And it was always a hassle. I'm sure you can relate. Yep. <laughs> and so I've been happy to play shows where I don't need to bring my amp because there's a PA system and all we do is plug into a mixer and I can have all my tabletop stuff right there. Just, you know, sim very similar as, as last night at Resident. A lot of those people have, you know, very compact systems where it's maybe a modular system in a suitcase, which I also have now. <laughs> that, that brown one there. Which is really, f and it's absolutely wonderful. Like, I played, I, I took that out, that the Korg Volca and the Moog Minotaur brought out a sequencer and, you know, played a very minimal set last year, and, that, and I had a good time doing it. The Pleasure and Pain Symphony <clears throat> that's up on Bandcamp was recorded at Resonant Frequencies and then Resident uh, as the follow up. And the setup, I think, took me 45 minutes oh. to unpack and set up and configure and arrange myself because a lot of the, the table layouts are all really modular focus. Okay, here's yeah. where your modular is going to go. Here's where yours is. So suddenly having a microphone on a microphone stand, a theremin on a microphone stand, and then the push on its own stand, then that's going to a laptop, and then I'm figuring out the power strip that is one reason why I haven't played since February because <laughs> I was like, well, let's wait till it gets a little warmer. And, uh, you know, so the equipment's not being rained on when I'm pulling out of the car because it's taking me three trips Ooh. from the car to get stuff and haul it up the stairs. And then it's taken me, you know, at least a half hour to set up microphones and cables and whatnot. So uh, I think I will take a lesson from this conversation and rethink this setup. I mean, it was great, the, the, the push controller and using live and, and the theremin added, certainly adds an element that uh, I can say is sort of unique to my performance. And the fact that I'm using a MIDI theremin to, and I'm building patches in a Korg module. Actually, for the shows in January and February, I bought the module I sold 10 years ago or over 10 years ago because I thought I wouldn't use modulars anymore. I'm like, oh, I'm, yeah. all, I'm all about loops now. Yeah. But I so love those patches from 1992 and I saw one available from Japan cheap. I'm like, yeah, just get it back again. Nice. I had all the patches still in the theremin and I'm like, okay, let's do that for the show. Uh, but stringing that together, mic stand, theremin box, antennas, MIDI cables to the MIDI converter, cables to the MIDI box, audio out of the box. You know, it's a lot. It, it's, a it's a lot, lot to set up. It is. So uh, I'd like to put together something smaller than I was thinking, well, if I get down in this modular scene, that's a lot of cash to be you know, putting in to build up module. It is. But knowing that I can whip something like this out of the backpack, yeah. you know, two, two units, maybe one for beats and... Yeah. Uh, one for knob tweaking. Yeah, my my friend uh, Lenny Hammaker, who gave that Korg Beats to me, uh, he's got the Korg Volca sample, 
So you can you can actually you know put in samples and, and we actually played resonant frequencies uh, last year in April and he played a, a long snip of of a movie in there and a great a really great one from uh, the network hmm. a really good line out of the network in there and we threw that into our set and it was we we had a, we had a ball playing that that set that was a really good one and he and I actually do a, um, a duo together called Imitation Growth. So he and I are, you know, slowly working on. He was the first guy to play last night, actually. So you yeah. actually saw him, his, him perform solo last night. Yeah. So he's he and I are, you know, we're working on our album. We've got like five tracks. Try to push ourselves to make maybe six or seven before we cut the album. Cool. Now you were telling me last night that you were using theremin for your graduate program. Yeah. So tell me a little. Tell me more about that. So uh, my great. My master's program in multimedia started off with one intention and ended up in a radically different focus. And along the way, I wanted to do an interactive piece with bodies. And the original idea was to use this brainwave monitor, and I'd be in a big plexiglass box, and people would interact with my body and change my brainwaves, and then that would trigger MIDI events within a gallery space so it was very midi focus wow. um, and that's where I started and then more and more as I went through the program I started removing myself from the art it wasn't a focus on me as a focus on the audience and I thought well how can I extract this I can't put brain readers on all of their heads to do this and uh, uh, there was a, I was trying to remember last night the name of it. It was like a little magazine, maybe like six pages folded and stapled. And it went out like four times a year. And they had different bender circuit mods. Oh, okay. Um, and you would like get a, the famous was speak and spell. Yeah. You'd get an old oh, speak and spell at, you know, at uh, the thrift store. And you'd go in and solder. Yeah. So I started soldering this stuff and circuit bending. And right. there was a little thing that said $20 theremin. And $20 being a fan of science fiction, I'm like, I know that sound. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> and uh, so I got the schematic. And, oh, geez, that was, I think, Fry's, old Fry's Electronics used to still have ICs and, and whatnot. So, or I may have to order on line, online, but I got a breadboard. I'd never done this before. And I started building this thing. And built this little theremin unit that ran off a 9-volt battery. <laughs> and I thought, this would be great. It's responding to bodies being near it. Since this is a body, music, interactivity thing, I could use that. And the final design was where you walked into a gallery space and there were these poles projecting out of the wall that had three three wraparounds of barbed wire. So you'd go through kind of this barbed wire tunnel into this central space that was filled with this large fleshy weather balloon. So between the balloon and the center, this pulsating uh, textured skin, that had replaced me in a box as the sort of organic element. And then the sort of threatening or inorganic element was these layers of barbed wire which we ran three times around the room. So three different layers. So each one of those had a little theremin attached to it. Wow. 
So as you came near it, all of a sudden, so you had this feeling of you're getting near something that's growling at you and maybe almost screaming at you as you get really close to it. So people would come in the room and move around and that would impact the theremin. Wow. Um, and then we had motion sensor lights. That would, uh, originally I was going to do, again, this all was going to be high-end MIDI, synchronized lights and brain waves. And I just, I guess I got to be in my bonnet to like, whoa, let's back away from that and make this more organic. And I felt like the theremin would do that. And when I presented that to my uh, professors, they're like, theremin? You mean that old... 1950s radio frequency why would you do that when you could have high-tech MIDI picking the subjective notes in the ninth scale and you know very theory based and I decided that I wanted to go this more chaotic base where I literally it just gave up control of the room to people moving around it now it turned out that I needed to uh, loan a power supply from a company that was like $10,000 to maintain exactly nine volts to this $20 theremin with all these people in the room because it, it would throw off the voltage and then the theremin would just stop. Uh, so that turned out to be the hidden behind the scene <laughs> high-end piece of gear. Wow. Uh, so that was the idea. And, and I've been influenced by a psychologist who had been a student of Sigmund Freud called Wilhelm Reich. And he had talked about... Um, the sort of the natural flowing state of being versus an agitated state. And he was studying single cells and noticing that they pulled into a sphere when threatened, like an amoeba, mm -hmm. or they would flow out when they weren't threatened. So my idea was to create, use the theremin and the lights and everything to create a space where people could go towards the center and you know, this this creature that sort of retracted itself away from the barbed wire and that there would be a sort of more symbolic or abstract experience so that was that was the idea and they signed my masters so i must have accomplished it <laughs> that's fantastic so i was i was curious about you know and thank you for explaining that to me about you know your use of the theremin cuz i wasn't you know from our conversation last night i wasn't sure what your, if you're using theremin in your albums, or if it was just you know with your that you know that project from from graduate school. Well, it did it go into the albums after that. Okay. So that was the initial thing, and theremins just weren't weren't a thing at the time. Right. Um, you figure we went from reel to reel tape to samplers. You know, they were very limited. I was talking last night about the you know five and three quarter inch sampler that yeah. felt like a motorcycle because it's all steel. All and, um, and then when the DX7 came out, oh, that has MIDI, even though it's implemented a little weird, like you have to offset all the numbers by one and whatnot. By the early 90s, you know, that was where things were at. Like, okay, MIDI has settled down, everything's standard, we can have everything talking to each other. And you can use samplers to have infinite amount of sounds. So the idea of going back to older technology like that um, just wasn't on people's minds. But I think much like the modular scene right now, there's a kind of backlash that starts to happen. We're like, oh, this is too easy. There's a little too much control. And it starts feeling like you're 
you're working for the machine rather than interacting with a technology in a way that's creative. Um, so Bob Moog had put out a theremin kit. Um, and then uh, I'm trying to remember the company that put out the Theramax. They were all like, they were like a mail order magazine where you order in a big bag of resistors and whatnot showed up with a diagram that said, here, solder this kid. Um, so I built one of those. I think it took about two days solid of soldering to solder the mother, the little motherboard. And so I started using that and I started putting that in some of the live shows as a kind of like concert intro at the beginning, you know, something to get attention and, you know, calm the audience down and focus on we're, we're now going to start the show. So I'd have a, like a theremin intro. And then I found that some of the instability <laughs> was cool and some of it wasn't. It's like, okay, <laughs> it's just not working. I don't know why. Um, and I got out, I guess because I had done some theremin stuff and people had started posting some of my stuff, theremin stuff on the web there was a little theremin community that started bubbling up. Mm. And Bog Moog obviously noticed this and put out his theremin kit. Uh, the, I'm trying to remember which one that is. I don't know. There's, he has several now. But uh, anyhow, got the kit. And then that got me the, the attention of a guy in England who was selling theremins and he wanted to break in the American market. So I started selling his theremins here. Some of them were like little toy, a lot of toy theremins. Yeah. They were relatively cheap with just an antenna for pitch and that was about it. Okay. Uh, and I only found one person who could ever play one of those actual melody. It was a jazz guy. He's yeah. just using his fingers. You had to really have amazing control to do anything with it. But the larger ones were good. Yeah. And he put out a module that converted the audio to MIDI. So suddenly, I could use all my synthesizers and samplers with the theremin as a controller. That's so cool. I quite quickly moved away from the theremin sound. There on some of the a couple tracks on the '90s albums have like an intro that's theremin or a tone, but for the live performances, I would use something more atmospheric where I could do like a big a big wash sound and the theremin responds well to like a cello patch mm -hmm. and then in comes cello playing the nice thing about the box uh for me i have a decent ear i wouldn't say i have a great ear uh so the box would actually show me what pitch i'm playing and it, is it flat or is it sharp nice. so i had a visual support for what i was doing and that's the setup that i played at in january and february Oh, cool. Kind of hauled back out of the, the mothball. But, uh, yeah, so that was this, the Theremin adventure. But I think by time, I don't know, I guess I guess going into the last time I played it in a show before this year probably was 2000. I got into loops. They were reliable. Yeah. I could expect them to do what uh, I wanted to, so... Uh, like you said, with the small module, like being able to do a show and just show up and not have to be like, okay, setting up all this gear. It was great to just have a laptop with sure. loops 
and boom, go do the show. Whether yeah. it was Acid Pro where I started or using live uh, with the Push 2 like I do now, that was uh, a little less chaotic. So that's my, my theremin journey. That's cool. Well, you know, I haven't used Acid since... I started using Acid, in, I think, in 99, mm -hmm. and I don't think I've used it since 2003. It's uh, just kind of one of those forgotten you know, platforms that I just haven't, you know, I use Logic Pro X now. It's like, I don't need that. <laughs> but no, that was, I did a, a lot of fun stuff in, in Acid. That was a good program. It was a it, it's good. Um, I, I enjoy arranging. And Acid and the loop libraries allow you to quickly approach music like Legos. Right, you don't have to go and handcraft every Lego block, and you know figure out the dye color that's going to make your block blue or red. Where I feel that that's where modulars are. You're going down into the details. Yeah, that's and nice. and you're maybe blending the chemicals that will surprise you by turning the Lego block green, and then you build up these Lego blocks, and then from there you compose out. If you're wanting to quickly throw a piece together, because I'm primarily a vocalist, if I want to throw a track together quickly because I have a song idea, or I want to be inspired to write a song, Acid is great for that. And that I can just go paint, paint, paint. Here's my beats, here's some bass lines. Um, and now, okay, that's inspired me to do a vocal or a lyric. So I think it still has its purpose and Acid Pro 7 was the last version 11 years ago and it just got bought out by a company called magics in germany and they put out acid pro 8 last year and 9 this year so the product is back in the landscape and they're you know it's built into a full daw by time 7 came out and but it was a little unstable mm. you wouldn't perform live with it yeah and live had really taken over the market in the meantime yeah so i see what they're they're trying to make it into their version of live now okay. so the, it still has legs and i was in there the other day and got a loop library up and quickly whipped together a little ep and i was like oh i remember how fun this was you know how, <laughs> how satisfying that i can just like you know over lunch whip together a couple tracks and yeah. and be rolling and that's its real charm um and they've they've bolted on some deeper components, but it's it's not like using live with like the Max plugin, where you're really digging down in, and in the end, it's still not tactile. You know, your your modulars. I'm looking over at these. I'm like pulling that plug, just hearing the plug going in to the patch, and coming up with that patch. You're really and knowing what each module or each piece does and how they add together in an unexpected way is more satisfying than spending, say, four hours digging through a loop library of a thousand samples going, oh, I kind of like that one. Um, I, that is, I think, there are fundamentally just two different experiences. Yeah. Because with a modular, you really have to work at getting the right combinations of those modules together to get the sound you want out of them. And you can find something 
phenomenal that you didn't expect, which is one of the wonderful things of why I think a lot of people are, are going back to hardware over, well, you know, people are and they're not at the same time, but there's definitely, you know, you've definitely seen that there is that community, especially here in the Bay Area, that there are people who, are, who want that hardware and they understand that there's going to be these interesting sounds that they didn't intend to make, but they're actually, it's, it's, it's surreal because when you're playing modular, you're, 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 uh, you're interacting with that machine and you're getting a gratification out of it. And sometimes there's a push and pull with it where you're playing this modular, but sometimes it's playing you because it's creating something and you either want to make it do something else or you allow it to do that and then try to add to it. So it's, it's really fun. That makes sense. And uh, you were talking about personalities earlier and you know the, the angst factor of industrial. And I think I've spent most of my life being pretty control freak. And over the recent years, I've been learning how to let that go. And I see that as a part of the module, like you said, the push and pull, is you're letting go of that complete control. Like you're interacting and you're participating together as opposed yeah. to I've pre-programmed this, you are my dominion, I hit space bar, and now we've got a concert, <laughs> right? Which is a complete control, which is I see like a, I don't mind, like, you know, the DJ scene from in the late 90s because the technology still wasn't there yet there wasn't that level of control you had to listen what the turntable was doing and if your belt drive broke during a show etc uh it got to the point with live and the dj scene where you could just set up your laptop behind your podium and you are complete control because you have imposed control on this thing from you know a month before the show and it's really about the lighting working and the PA working versus the actual composition. You know the composition's gonna work. You've dialed yeah. that in. Um, and if you're there to dance and have a good time and see a light show, cool. But if you're there thinking more from a band aesthetic like, I'm going to see this virtuoso person play an instrument, then that's just not happening. That's not a part of the experience. And what I'm seeing everybody do at the modular events is they're playing those instruments and they're imposing a certain structure in, the, uh, in how they're setting up the patches. But I see people's faces after they're done. It's not, yeah, it's this, Hmm, that was interesting. Like something went awry. Something either took over or uh, went off in an unexpected direction. Yes. So I posted last night that uh, electropunk is alive in San Francisco. Because <laughs> it made me think about that idea of punk, which fundamentally has the philosophy of the lack of professionalism. Yes. And not... In several ways. One, the idea that everybody gets to get in. Everybody gets an opportunity to do their thing. 
and also the idea that this highly crafted, perfectly produced, blah, 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 sort of sanitizes the experience too much. And if, you know, you just don't know that the guy is going to start playing the bass guitar with his teeth or, and he didn't even know he was going to do that a moment ago. There's a, a vitality in that. And uh, I see that both at the, both of the modular groups is more experimentation, but also less direct control of the result. It's like more of a, a dance. Definitely. That's a very good perception. It's a really good perspective. I like that. It makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm curious to know a little bit more background on, on you. So I was curious to know if you could elaborate a little bit more on how you started getting into music. So my mother says that uh, I would kick in her womb whenever they would go to a party and there was music playing. So she said, oh, I, I knew from the get-go that you're going to be involved in music. I remember first grade, uh, the first time a teacher played me a piece of music and you know said, listen to a classroom. Second grade, I remember I wrote my first lyric. And uh, I think I was aware, well, I was aware certainly of uh, radio. And my parents definitely played music. It was largely... Um, on my mom's side, more of a Hank Williams Jr. old country style. And my father's side was more a little more pop rock and a Neil Diamond kind of thing. So those were influencing me. And at some point along the way, the I recognized I had an affinity for British pop. And some some of the stuff was was different. Like I appreciated the Motown sound, that American sound. But there was something about the the British music that connected with me, and I and I wanted to sing along with it, and wanted to sing. So in fourth grade, I joined choir. And there really wasn't much else. I grew up in South Bay, in San Jose, and there just wasn't much outside of country, and maybe you can get in choir at school. That was it. Um, so I joined choir and that, that gave me a lot of experience around melody development, um, obviously all classical composition and whatnot. So that, that influenced me pretty heavily, but I always liked pop. I always wanted to do like a Beatles song or be Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I had a high soprano voice so I could do Paul McCartney until my voice changed. And, uh, but when my voice changed, it just all went to crap. It's like I struggled to sing in tune, um, couldn't tell. I, my voice was breaking up in the tenor range. Um, <clears throat> if I get down too low, then it's a gravel situation. So I really struggled vocally, but I, I kept doing jazz choir and uh, concert choir. And jazz choir got me more amplified microphones closer to what I wanted to do. But from a production standpoint, I didn't have any resources to do production. And I was struggling with the voice. And But I did have a cassette tape recorder. And how Audio Terrorist, one of my longest running projects, got started was literally 
I'd read this quote from a Kathy Acker book, uh, Blood and Guts in High School. No, no. Yeah, yeah, it's in Blood and Guts in High School. Uh, about a terrorist is someone who surprises people. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting definition of that word. So why not be an audio terrorist? Like, just do stuff that's surprising. So I would take my cassette recorder around. I'd record friends. Oh, the batteries are going dead. That sped up the tape. So when you played it back, they're all like Mickey Mouse. Okay. So I'd allowed all those mistakes or frustrations or my lack of skill to become uh, almost like a pressure cooker, a driver of that frustration. When you mentioned the frustration earlier, I'm like, yeah, that's probably why I got into industrial too. <laughs> um, and I just started banging on stuff. Uh, we had a piano, and I'd bang on the piano and spin a record backwards with my finger and just anything to be doing something creative and sonic. And uh, so Audio Terrace became, was born with that. And the first, I'd say three full albums, I'd say the fourth one was more of a compilation with extra stuff. Uh, I would produce these albums, and sometimes it was... A friend that's two in the morning, we're in a hotel at a science fiction convention and he's playing on the piano and people are coming up drunk saying, you know, crazy things to us. And I'd record them talking and then chop up the tape with <laughs> a razor blade and scotch tape and put it back together. Um, all that stuff was, again, I really just wanted to do pop music, <laughs> but it just seemed like pop music didn't want to do me. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to hack my way into something. And that's how I got into doing that, the more experimental stuff. And then uh, while doing choral work at San Jose State University, it was considered one of the top choral groups in the world. And But I knew that I, my passion fully wasn't in it. And I saw a recording class come up. I took this little recording class, probably a quarter size in this room, had a four track reel to reel, little mixing board, had a, a Juno keyboard that where you could program maybe like 16 notes in a row. So you <laughs> hit record on the tape recorder and hit play, and then I'd pause it and then I'd program the next 16 notes. Um, and did this uh, tonal cluster version of Fur Elise. And that was my first like working in the studio piece that got me to know my mentor, Dan Wyman. And uh, Dan ghost wrote for John Carpenter films. Um, so most famously, the Halloween soundtrack is really Dan Wyman. It's not John. John gets the right. screen credit because that's a different contract than the actual music. Right. And, uh, and so Dan really influenced me in that he was the recording guy at the university and there was another guy who was supposed to be the electronic music guy Alan Strange and him and I just didn't get along and I thought he was so focused on the technical that he now never allowed his students to be creative he was more concerned about their reputation that they knew that that was a diminished nine chord in a uh, you know a microtonal scale by window Carlos in 1972 he was seen as the more avant-garde, but what I found was under Dan, I could be avant-garde. I didn't have to explain what I was doing. And the audio terrorist stuff um, continued to grow under him. 
in the studio. Um, and that's sort of, that's the foundation of everything. And then I went into the masters, worked on the theremin, and started getting better equipment and wanted to go uh, a little more like a dance style and just couldn't do it. Everything came out like I had three legs <laughs> or like music for people with three legs. Right. Um, so that went on for a long time until really Acid Pro wow. where I could just paint in, okay, here's the beats. It's already, it's already set. Yeah. And I know this is going to work. Um, so it was a long time of more experimental focus, a couple live bands thrown together, but they never lasted very long. And, uh, doing the, the studio experimentation and live shows with that. Um, and somewhere along the line, more fetish fashion came in and stuff started being, you know, more focused towards that community and the kink community probably by the late 90s. Mm -hmm. So I got invited to do shows like at Folsom and um, different events around San Francisco and whatnot. Yeah, you've got an album that's, you know, music you've played at Folsom, right? There, oh, that, uh, you looked through my band camp. Yes, I did. Uh, that was actually the practice for for the band live band that we played Folsom last year. Oh, okay. Uh, that was their practice tape or whatever. Cool. Um, so that was a collection of like uh, minus tracks and whatnot for them to practice to for the live show. Uh, but yeah, we did. And then after 9-11, I was really concerned about the band name. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd recently had a recording session in San Francisco. The singer wasn't able to make it. Uh, the gal I was dating at the time sang. So she, she sang on the songs and just whipped out her book of poetry and started singing completely different lyrics and vocals to the same music. Uh, well, that was easy. Cool, let's do that. Uh, so the band got rebranded Queer Blue, which means uh, blue leather, uh, for at least six years. And that's kind of gone off and done its own thing, and I've rolled some of that material back into Audio Terrace by covering it myself. And uh, So that, that was the focus during the early 2000s. And I still maintain some of those contacts and, and do some, some work in that space, um, then I, I really felt like Audio Terrace was my passion, so I wanted to focus on that. And so I kind of rolled that back in starting in 2008 uh, to the present. Okay. And that's pretty much it. And, and through, I would say through loops and then getting to know more musicians, I've gotten to do more pop song-like material over the last decade. Uh, so I, I, I got to that point, and then I felt like like the creativity had gone out of it a bit. Mm. And uh, I can't remember how I ran into Frank Martin, but ran into him, and he goes, oh, dude, you should go to these two events. So I did Resonant Frequencies, and that completely, you know, no vocals, no intended beats, all experimental. And uh, that was, it was a nice kind of, I felt like a homecoming. Yeah. And a full cycle back. So it wasn't like I was doing it out of frustration, not being able to do something else, but I was doing it because I liked doing it. So that's the whole tour. Cool. Right back, I'm going to grab another beer. Cool.
I, I did miss one one part of the story. Yeah. Uh, in the late 90s, I was trying to remember if I was talking to you about this. Um, there was another folding back of the art letting go in that I was doing Audio Terrace. I was doing more structured songs, more pop, or I don't know if you'd call it pop, but synthesized lyric, melody, stuff. And a guy named Frank Moore in the East Bay reached out to me and said, hey, I'm doing my Sunday webcast. Would you be on my show? You know, you'll play you know, for maybe 20 minutes, half hour, and then I'll interview you for like a half hour. And I said, yeah, sure. And uh, the gal who I was dating at the time was in also in the band, and I'd become, again, less confident in my vocals. So we would trade off songs that worked for me, songs that worked for her. So we came, we did our two vocal sets, we backed each other up, and then he interviewed. And the interesting thing about Frank was Frank has never spoken a word, had never spoken a word in his life. He's passed now. And... He was confined to a wheelchair. Yes, we did have this conversation last night. And I had been thinking, oh, okay, I need to work in the tech sector to fund my art, and you know, I gotta find time to do my music, and had all this thinking around production, and oh, I need to be promoting this or whatever. And now you're sitting down with a man in a wheelchair, who cannot speak. He's been confined. Them. It's not like he once could speak. He's confined to a wheelchair all of his life, unable to speak and communicate to any other human being. And I'm looking around at a house, his partner, their mix engineer, live in help. Their house is painted like this tie-dye color. They've got a van outside or like SUV outside painted tie-dye. There's a house down the block painted tie-dye where their students live. Frank has this whole shaman program <laughs> where he teaches people how to let go and be themselves. And he's all doing this from in this knotted up shell sitting wow. in a wheelchair. And you told me last night he had cerebral palsies? Uh, it was cerebral palsy, okay. if I remember correctly. And it lets you go, wait a minute, how am I limiting myself? And he would point blank. He had a, a person came along in his 20s and put a headband on him with a pointer where he'd point out letters. And then someone could read for him and be his voice. And that unleashed this uh, highly intelligent individual from their cage. Wow. So you're sitting there and you're just blown away and you're thinking, oh, I got to work on that next EP or single or, you know, I'm having problems with my beats and whatnot. And this guy's looking at you like, get over yourself. Go do something. Just do it. Do it all the time. Have fun with it. <laughs> Why are you torturing yourself over this? And he's interviewing. And after a while, you would stop. You would hear, see his eyes. And you would stop hearing his wife's voice. It was like his voice was getting in your head. And he's going along asking this question, and I'm maybe blah, blah, blah. And he was kind of like, just, whew. okay, let's cut the shit. You know, let's just cut right to it. What excites you about life? 
okay, wow, okay. You kind of talk that a while, and then all of a sudden he says, oh, by the way, my band's performing this Saturday. You want to be in it? <laughs> and you realize the potential of someone sitting there, no technology, just a pointer stick on his head, and how much he can create with that. And then what a force in nature that can be to have a tool that was sort of his modular synth, right? He just had this placard with letters and a pointer and someone who was willing to read it for him. Wow. And uh, he invited me over to jam with him. He would do Sunday jams when he didn't have a guest to interview. And uh, he said, come on, let's jam. And show up and he's got his hands all wrapped in bundles so he can bang on an acoustic piano. And they got a head mic on him so he can howl like a Wookiee is what the, <laughs> the sound engineer called it. <laughs> and I was improvising on an HP 15. These came out about around 2000, something like that. It's a, a Roland unit. It had a motion sensor for triggering samples. It had two different faders and a series of pads. So you could improvise different sound samples and kind of roll, you know, set it to do like a drum roll by pressure. And so I'm jamming on this, and Frank finishes up and says, oh, that was really cool, you know. We should do that again sometime. Oh, okay, that's cool. I go away, and the next week a package shows up in the mail, and it's a VHS tape of a movie that he stars in as an alien who's been discovered by a fashion designer in the for in the woods of UC of Cal <laughs> and who has the magic powers to make people's clothes fly off. <laughs> and what we jammed on has been edited to be the soundtrack for this film. Oh, and by the way, here's a CD with a remix. Of, wow. And you're just blown away. So that, that, I think at that point, I had felt... The experimental stuff was almost like me being a hack because I couldn't do the pop thing. And that freed me up to actually see it as a thing. As, as Even though I liked experimental music myself, I felt like my own experimental music wasn't as valid until that moment. So Frank gave me that. Wow. I can't imagine how fantastic it was to to know him sounds like he was someone that was able to you know touch many people through not without even having a real voice yeah quite a quite an amazing skill um and to touch his inner core of people to provide him the physical support that he needed uh, i remember he said uh you want to be in the show I'm doing this other weekend in San Francisco? And I said, yeah, sure. And he goes, you know, bring your theremin. I want a theremin in the show. I said, okay. And uh, I got there, and there was no elevator. It was a two-floor. The, the, it was a bar below, and the second wow. floor was where we were performing at the stage. And you realize someone had to carry him up that flight of stairs. Wow. And he wasn't a small guy. And I'm like, Wow to have that engagement with people and empowering others so that they empower you, uh, support relationship. The show was interesting. <laughs> At some point, nobody could hear the theremin because of the cacophony. It was so intense. 
Um, he would play there, and he'd play in a place that used to be in Richmond. I don't know if it's there anymore. Uh, Burnt Ramen was the name of the place. Oh, my God. Uh, it's like a punk <laughs> yes, club yes. that was my off the grid. It was an old, old pork packing factory. Yes. Um, I God, I think I went there once back in the aughts. And my older brother, who he and I got into music together back in the late 90s, um, you know, we started a band called Mid Nightmare, and it was a metal band. And I, you know, I dropped out within maybe a year or two, and but the band kept going for many years, and it 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 quickly evolved into a punk band. So they played Burnt Roman all the time, and it might still be there. I honestly have not been there in over ten years, but it might still be there. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely pretty off the grid. Yeah. I don't think they had any license or anything like no, that. No, they just, just did things. Uh, and I remember the owner, during one of the shows, just came out and threw some cinder block in front of the stage. And then uh, someone threw like a match in it or like a, a rag that had fire. And so there's this little fire happening in front of the stage in the cinder block. And you see the owner coming in. I thought, oh, this guy's got grab an extinguisher and put this out. He reached in his back pocket, and it was one of these yellow kerosene squeeze cans. And he just started squeezing kerosene on it to make oh, the fire bigger. Geez. And I thought, okay, this is the owner doing this. Okay, this is this is definitely a different kind of spot. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah I'd, I'd, I'd be curious if it still exists, because I think that's something the Bay Area has been progressively losing that's true yeah a lot of it's been dis- a lot of that um that anarchy of space has been disappearing that's true especially after after ghost ship that was a big loss it's a good point um when i visit my parents you know because the trial's going on i see the news on that and when i first moved I grew up in San Jose, and then in 98, I finally listened to all my professor's advice, get out of San Jose, <laughs> because whatever you're learning here, you're not going to be able to do here. And my mentor in grad school, Barbara de Genevieve, uh, who's a gallery photographic artist, she was like, you got to be in Oakland. And I moved to Oakland. I moved to a warehouse space. And it wasn't one that you could really... Uh, doll up too much but I certainly could hang all my pieces on the wall and do a gallery show there and have the studio there but all of the other ones over by High Street you could go over there and you could glue plastic beads to the sidewalk to make a mosaic or whatever Um, and there were definitely parties uh, where it was definitely like an alternate reality space yeah and you had those opportunities to to create communities like that so i can imagine that uh, ghost ship kind of put the nail in the coffin of that yeah uh, before that happened uh between 2006 and 2010 my girlfriend was at mills college mm-hmm. and i was going back between san francisco and oakland to go visit her and I was I spent a lot of time in Oakland at that in, within those four years, and in that time she knew, like all the cool dudes in the music grad program, you know, these these two twins, uh, 
but Chad and Chad Curtis, yeah, Curtis, Chad, and, yeah, Chad and Curtis McKinney. Um, they were they're you know very they were musicians and they were all in in doing amazing stuff. Yeah, they were you know they knew how to play guitar, bass, and keyboards, everything, programming. They did it all, and they're still doing you know you know they've got their own lives and they're doing great, but. You know, through them and some other people, we were going to all you know as all the uh, all those shows in those you know those warehouses in Oakland, and we'd be in these weird spaces where there would be I can't even there would be like a stack of kegs over there, and then there's a piano over there, and then there's a couch here in the communal area where everyone's jamming and playing together, and and it was fun because there was you know all this chaos around you and it and yet everyone still come together and create fantastic music you know, it, it was an interesting time but I think you're right that that's disappearing from the Bay Area a lot right now and that it's being cracked down and even myself since I got back into playing live music my girlfriend being concerned after Ghost Ship because we lost a dear friend to it and as everybody did hmm. um, uh, she's always concerned about me going out to play the shows, and so I, you know, encourage her to say, "Hey, come with me." I, you know, so you can see the space that we're gonna go, that I'm gonna go play in. So you know, I'm gonna be safe. It's not, it's not nothing bad is gonna happen. You know, so resident frequencies, it's it's a safe space. Resident is a safe space. My friend and I who do peaked is extremely a safe place. So that's one of the things that, as a performer, I am more aware of now because of that that uh, that uh, horrible loss the last um, seven years got a little different for me because I was part of all those communities in the East Bay and uh, so I didn't have the same impact in my life in that I had moved into a very different life, and so I I still had twice removed people, or you know more distant, but certainly from the experience of being in those spaces and performing in them, um, felt it, and felt that loss of a place where you can be creative, and. Uh, yeah, so I didn't feel it as directly as you did because of that. Because I'd gone seven years ago, I decided to go work corporate job, save up money that I hadn't saved earlier in my life. And uh, so I was somewhat detached. And then a year ago, this month, no, uh, July 1st, a year ago, I decided to resign from my corporate position and take a year off and get back in touch with my art side. And that's one reason why the, uh, you know, residents and resident frequencies and meeting you, you and whatnot, that's all, meeting Frank, that's all rekindling all that. And so I'm kind of coming back after being away and saying, what, what is here? what is left 
Um, you know, I've listened for six years about the gentrification of San Francisco and Oakland and, you know, are any of those haunts still around? And um, having said that, your point is, yes, they are, but not the way they were. Yeah. Like people have uh, enough has gone wrong. Now, I'm saying Oakland. I know during the trial recently someone said they had seen someone set the fire. And if you look at the last two years in the news, warehouse have been set on fire by arsonists for the last several years. I don't know about you, but I have not heard of who's been caught with this. Several apartment complexes that have been going up have been burnt to the ground. Wow. And that might be a different thing. That might be an anti-gentrification attack. Um, but you also have to wonder in cases like the warehouses with the pressure of housing whether or not uh, warehouses districts are being torn down or this is used as an excuse to push uh, artistic communities so we can build more apartments so there may be a battle going on there that we don't even know about I am unaware to your earlier point as a performer I'm like is there other places that are safer for me to be? Yeah, uh, I would say probably. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's uh, something that you have to think about now is your safety as a performer. You know, it's it's a it's a, I think it's a scary thing, actually, that we actually really have to think about. Am I going to be getting home today from from a gig? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of weird because, sure, when I was doing gigs back in the early aughts, uh, we were too excited to be going to the gig and playing to care about if we we're going to be getting home safe. You know, you know, getting yeah. getting older, you do think about those things. I'm thinking about uh, survival research laboratories. Do you remember them? No. So late '80s. I'm thinking about a show. Mark, I think, was one of their founders. Soma used to have a lot of spaces like that. And I think that's all completely long gone. But I remember in the 80s going to a gallery show that was like industrial art. And it was like dangerous industrial art. <laughs> and uh, down in Hunting, Hunter, um, Hunter's Point, Point, there's a big warehouse out there that now there's like more like electronic rave kind of stuff. Yeah. But back then it was very industrial. I remember going to a show, being the bleachers, and they were spraying gasoline everywhere and lighting it. And wow. and it was like there was a, a car, a guy in a clown head on this car that was this superheated rocket engine. And, you know, anyone of this could have killed the audience. And we were there watching this extreme industrial uh, performance space. Like they would shoot wow. fluorescent tubes that would explode or and there'd be like a fluorescent tubes used as like a digital watch on the counting numbers it was very creative stuff but i look back and say wow that was like hazardous it was a hazardous <laughs> experience and uh, yeah and as you get older you start thinking hmm, was that that probably wasn't too wise yeah. um at the same time since i did survive that i'm glad i had those experiences because yeah. They, they're hard to come by now. 